Welcome back to There is a Season, the Pete Seeger podcast. This is your host, Adam Morse. There is a Season is a podcast devoted to reevaluating the work, music, and politics of the late American folk musician, Pete Seeger. We work towards rediscovering and getting more in touch with Pete Seeger's contributions to better understand how we can more fully apply them now and in the future. Join us today as we discuss Pete's activities between 1940 and 42 with the Almanac Singers. This episode will get into the founding of the group and its members, its political and musical direction, and the forces that eventually started to fracture the group, mainly the press and the FBI, by mid-1942. When Pete Seeger returned in late 1940 from his travels throughout the American West and South, he began brainstorming about where he should turn next as a musician. To try and help Pete out a little, Alan Lomax had attempted to get Pete a radio job on his and Nicholas Ray's CBS radio program titled Back Where I Come From. This remotely produced series was based half in Washington, D.C. under Lomax's direction and half in New York under Ray's. Long before he was a famous Hollywood filmmaker, Nick Ray had been employed by the Recreation Project within Roosevelt's Work Progress Administration during the Great Depression, which Charles Seeger also worked for. Ray had, in fact, previously traveled and had recorded and collected folk songs himself for the government. But by 1940, Ray had changed his direction to producing. Airing three nights a week from August of 1940 to February of 1941, Back Where I Come From featured folk performers like the blues singer Josh White, the Golden Gate Quartet, Woody Guthrie, and the singer and actor Burl Ives. Lomax had convinced Ray to give Seeger a chance on air, but Seeger was only hired for a few episodes. It isn't clear as to whether it was Ray or Lomax that didn't ask Pete back. It may have been his current musical abilities, but it seemed as if working and performing solo was not getting Pete anywhere. He needed to work with other people, where there was a more even distribution of talent, musicianship, intellect, and songwriting ability. Pete found this initially in Lee Hayes, a singer and labor organizer from Arkansas to whom we were introduced in the last episode. When Lomax introduced Seeger to Hayes, they both found that they had much in common politically and shared the interest of using folk songs to unite workers and help them organize across the country. Seeger and Hayes first performed together in December of 1940, but by the late spring of 1941, Pete and Lee had found themselves several other members that rounded out the group nicely. Their third member was Lee's roommate, Millard Lampell. Mill Lampell was a Jew from New Jersey and had a knack for getting the group gigs, and was quite skilled in songwriting and rhyming, which would prove indispensable to the group. Their baritone singer was Pete Hawes, originally from Boston. Hawes was connected to the Boston Brahmin status Houghton family, from whom he had inherited money, and is sometimes described as being your classic armchair intellectual who liked to discuss class inequality while sipping a tasty beverage. Alan Lomax's sister, Bess Lomax, was also a member of the group, who was attending Bryn Mawr but would join the group in New York on weekends. Woody Guthrie would of course join the group eventually, but not yet, as he had been hired to write songs for the Bonneville Power Administration in Portland, Oregon, promoting the government's infrastructure projects. Overall, Pete operated as the most serious member of the group and kept the others on their toes regarding paying the rent and getting gigs. Where did the name the Almanac Singers come from? Let's listen to Pete tell the story about the founding of the group and its name. Lee Hayes had been a teacher at a Commonwealth College 
And he wanted to put out a book of union songs. And somebody told him, go to New York. That's where you can find publishers. Woody and I were, had just put out this songbook we call Hard-Hitting Songs for Hard-Hit People. And we were looking for a publisher for that. So I figured I should look him up. We found that down in Chinatown, there was a fundraising party for some place, and they wanted some singers. And uh, I asked Lee, come along with me, and we'll sing, we'll get a good supper at least. And we made a few dollars, maybe $5 or $10. I don't think $10 was a lot of money. I think we got $5. It might have been three. Well, pretty soon we were singing together, and his roommate, a journalist, Millard Lampell. We used to joke, kid him, called Millard Fillmore Lampell. Mill Lampell was a very good rhymer, and he could improvise a rhyme right on the spot to some song we were singing. So pretty soon he was joining us. He didn't have a regular job. And after about a month of this, our reputation was spreading when we were singing little house parties here and house parties there fundraisers for left-wing causes of some sort. And Lee said we should have a name. And uh, I read through our book, Hard-Hitting Songs, and somewhere in Woody's writing, we came across the word almanac. And Lee said, hold on, stop. Where I come from, in a farmhouse, there's two books. One is the Bible to help us get to the next world, and the almanac to help us get through this world. As the listener may already know, the Almanacs were not your traditional band. Their intention was to write and perform political music that could be used for the material and socio-political transformation of American society. In short, they were not a quote-unquote act. And while we acknowledge that protest songs had been present for centuries in different nuanced capacities around the world, Seeger and the Almanacs were attempting to harness this in a more organized way. There really was no political folk music scene at this time, as it had not yet been established. This was really just the beginning. The Almanacs managed to make their first record in the spring of 1941, titled Songs for John Doe. A few key players came in to help out the group attract others to underwrite the record. One of these notable individuals to help find investors was John Hammond, later known for his association with Columbia Records as a talent scout and producer. John Hammond is credited with discovering Count Basie, Billy Holiday, Aretha Franklin, Benny Goodman, and eventually Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen. Hammond was an important person in Seeger's life later in the 1950s when Seeger was blacklisted, with getting Pete signed to Columbia when no one else would have anything to do with him. Also helping the Almanacs was Earl Robinson, a leftist and West Coast-based songwriter. Robinson was author of the famous tune Joe Hill, and would later go on to write songs for Hollywood films before he was blacklisted. But most importantly for now, these two individuals helped the group meet Eric Bernay of Keynote Recordings. Through these connections, Songs for John Doe was recorded for Keynote in a studio in Manhattan in late March and early April of 1941. Blues singer Josh White was invited to come in on the record to sing some lead, as well as lend his excellent guitar skills. This record in current times is extremely difficult to come by, and while it has been made available electronically, exactitudes of the song titles and writing credits for particular tunes are not 100% certain. The order of the songs, as I speak about them here, is based upon what the majority of sources tell us. 
In terms of its lyrical content, however, this record is unique as it takes on a very anti-war dimension. While World War II was on the horizon, much of the American population had enough memory to recall World War I and its loss of lives, and did not want to get involved in another European conflict. The Almanacs echoed this perspective, which they attempted to communicate through their songs. We see this right away with the first track titled The Strange Death of John Doe. This has Seeger accompanying himself on the banjo, telling a story of a young man that died of unknown causes. This is also an example of what Pete's voice and banjo finger-picking skills were like in early 1941. Found him dead, so I've been told, and his eyes were closed, and his heart was cold. Only one clue to why he died, a bayonet sticking in his side. Pete's voice does generally hit the melody notes here, but as a tenor singer, clearly he's still working on developing his higher register. Pete also strums the one chord at the very end right after the relative minor, which in hindsight one might have ended on the relative minor to maintain the emotion of the song. While the tune is perhaps only mildly metaphorical and is perhaps lyrically vague about the exact context, it is clearly intended as an anti-war song. This is continued on track two, seemingly titled Billy Boy, featuring Josh White on guitar and singing lead, with the other almanacs backing him up. War, charming Billy. It's a long ways away. They are dying every day. He's a young boy and cannot leave his mother. Can you use a bayonet, Billy boy, Billy boy? Can you use a bayonet, charming Billy? No, I haven't got the skill to murder and to kill. He's a young boy and cannot leave his mother. Don't you want a silver medal, Billy boy, Billy boy? Don't you want... The third track, C for Conscription, is a peace song that features Pete in what is probably his first attempt at arranging the blues on the banjo. Pete Seeger is one of very few banjo players who have done this. Earl Scruggs, of course, does it in the bluegrass style, with his and Lester Flatt's instrumental-tuned Foggy Mountain Special from 1957. But what Pete is doing is remarkably novel, turning the five-string banjo into a rhythm and blues instrument, which he would continue to do throughout his life in covering others' blues numbers, as well as writing his own this way. Pete is combining a couple of traditions here, the 12-bar approach, as well as the yodel, being very akin to the traditional Mule Skinner blues or something similar from the Jimmy Rogers catalog. For conscription, and it's C for Capitol Hill. Well, it's C for conscription, and it's C for Capitol Hill. And it's C for the Congress that passed that goddamn bill.
The fourth track, Washington Breakdown, more definitively showcases Pete's new style of playing the banjo, the picking up and brushing down, as adapted from Bascom Lamar Lunsford. But we can now begin hearing this with Pete's own unique flair. The music here comes from the traditional fiddle tune, Cripple Creek. Pete would always put down his instrumental abilities, so you'll have to see what you think. But I think it's arguable to say that Pete had made considerable progress in a relatively short period of time. Lyrically, this song takes a stab at Franklin Roosevelt, with the lyrics asking not to be sent off to war. Franklin D, listen to me, you ain't gonna send me cross the sea, cross the sea, cross the sea, you ain't gonna send me cross the sea. You may say it's for defense, but that kind of talk that I'm against, I'm against, I'm against, that kind of talk ain't got no sense. As we can hear, Pete is bending strings and getting those modal Appalachian tones although he is perhaps playing a little bit too fast for his current ability level. Ironically, this is something that Pete spent much time discussing during festival workshops in the 60s when warning against new banjo players playing too quickly. Either way, it is a song that can get a crowd moving. The fifth track on the album is the traditional song Liza Jane, but with new pro-union and anti-war lyrics mixed in. Pete takes the vocal lead and the others sing behind him on the chorus, with others taking the lead on different verses. I'm gonna marry her if I can. Little Liza Jane. She loves me cause I'm a union man. Little Liza Jane. Oh, won't you? Oh, Eliza, little Liza Jane. Oh, Eliza, little Liza Jane. Heard a speech by the president, Dan. Little Liza Jane. Wants to put me in a regiment. Little Liza Jane. Oh, won't you? Oh, Eliza, little Liza Track 6, called The Ballad of October 16th, makes a very direct criticism of Congress passing the Conscription Act on October 16, 1940. While this was over a year before Pearl Harbor, Congress had voted that any males between 21 and 35 were able to be drafted into the military in preparation for the possibility of an American war in Europe or Asia. The song utilizes the same melody of the famous Ballad of Jesse James. The final track on the record, Plow Under, compares Roosevelt's Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1936, a New Deal program, to the casualties of unwanted war. The AAA attempted to limit the amount of land needed to be in production by paying farmers not to farm, thereby raising prices. But this was controversial because it led to the slaughtering of thousands of baby pigs and destruction of crops that could not thereafter be put into productive use. The AAA was eventually declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. 
The chorus line, Plow Under the Fourth American Boy, takes the perspective that the government, like with the culling of the pigs, isn't effectively concerned with domestic issues and is willing to let Americans die who are important for the country's economy. Remember when the AAA killed a million hogs a day instead of hogs it's men today. Plow the fourth one under, plow under, plow under, plow under every fourth American boy. They said our agricultural system was about... By calling the record Songs for John Doe, the almanacs were evidently attempting to show that they thought that these tunes were significant and relatable for the everyday person. The cover art, which I encourage all you listeners to examine, illustrates an imagination of labor and people in rural America. On the right, there is a farmer with a cowboy hat sitting on a box playing a guitar. On the left, a woman with a young child, and in the middle ground, two people walking that look as if they are supposed to be an industrial worker and a miner. A couple houses with front porches line the background, and split-rail fences sit in the foreground. The racial or ethnic presence in Lamer may or may not be present here, as the visual doesn't necessarily reflect this. Who or what was responsible for designing and implementing this is seemingly unclear, so the thought process behind it also remains unanswered. One thing was for certain, though. Because of the political content of these songs, Keynote recordings refused to allow their name to be printed on the album cover. Regarding the content of the album, though, it may seem shocking to hear leftists singing songs that were against U.S. involvement in World War II. But the almanacs at this moment were very much following the Communist Party USA's line regarding Stalin's non-aggression pact with Hitler, also known as the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact of August 1939. All this would soon change, of course, but either way, the Almanacs had a bunch of songs to work with and were ready to perform as a group. Perhaps surprisingly, within a relatively short time, the Almanacs were booked to play at Madison Square Garden. In late May 1941, the group minus Woody performed for what the Almanacs interpreted as their first big rally. The group really did not know what to expect at the show, however. Just the previous week, Pete had been attacked while playing the banjo at a party in Greenwich Village while he was singing a song making fun of Winston Churchill. How would these new political tunes go over? On top of this, the group was dressed in relatively casual street clothes and were not wearing suits or well-to-do clothing that you would expect to see someone wearing if they were a musical performer at Madison Square Garden. Indeed, their lack of more expensive attire was perhaps in part due to their own individual purchasing power but on some level, it was a spectacle they were also using to make a statement. They weren't sure how the program would go over, but the Almanacs hoped that the audience would glom on to what they were saying. Who were the Almanacs performing for? Nearly 20,000 people who are members of the Transport Workers Union, who also just happened to be on strike. The group had also just recently recorded their second album of six songs, titled Talking Union, which included some Union songs which were already in the protest song canon. All I Want, also known as I Don't Want Your Millions, Mister, of course came from Jim Garland. Get Thee Behind Me, Satan is a rousing blues number on the album, with Josh White playing lead guitar, and was a crowd pleaser in most concerts. Let's hear what this sounded like. 
On the 4th of July, the politicians say, Vote for us and we'll raise your pay. Get thee behind me, Satan, travel on down the line. I am a union man, gonna leave you behind. So then the company union sent out a call. The title track, Talking Union, was an adaptation of the talking blues style Woody had showed everyone, which involves three chords and speaking the words out. Also included on the album was Woody's tune Union Made, that he had written the year before when he and Pete were traveling together, as well as Union Train and Florence Reese's coal mining anthem, Which Side Are You On? Let's listen to that one. From all of you good workers, good news to you I'll tell of how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? My daddy was a miner and I'm a miner's son and I'll stick with the union till every battle's won. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? With two records worth of material, the Almanacs had a bunch to work with when they stepped out on stage that evening. When the group began singing, Seeger started with the tune Talking Union. The crowd reportedly became attentive as Pete spoke out the lyrics. They laughed when Pete said the following line. Cause the boss may persuade some poor damn fool to go to your meeting and act like a stool, but you can always tell a stool, oh, that's a fact. He's got a yaller streak running down his back. He doesn't have to stool. He'll always get along on what he takes out of blind men's cups. For those out there who have never heard this song before, Talking Union is an explanation to workers of how you can go and organize a union for yourself. The plain-spoken nature of the song communicated well with the transport workers, and the crowd gave the group a standing ovation. This was a major contrast to when Pete last sang in front of a New York crowd just over a year earlier. And while the peace songs from Songs for John Doe were applauded, the songs that got the most applause that night were the Union songs. Following this performance, the Almanac started becoming relatively popular amongst leftist circles in New York. The Daily Worker, a publication that commented on the happenings of the socialist and communist movements of the day, gave the group very positive reviews. Some reviews of the Almanacs were not nearly as positive, however, such as a review from Time that said, quote, Honest U.S. isolationists last week got some help from recorded music that they would rather not have received. Released by the Almanac Singers, a carefully anonymous Manhattan communist ensemble was an album of seven songs for John Doe. Professionally performed with new words to old folk tunes, John Doe's singing scrupulously echoed the mendacious Moscow tune. Franklin Roosevelt is leading an unwilling people into a J.P. Morgan war, unquote. An article published in The Atlantic by Harvard professor Carl Frederick was even less friendly, saying that the Almanac's music was, quote, poison in our system, unquote, and that while they, quote, innocuously, unquote, sang about peace, their message was, quote, strictly subversive and illegal, unquote. But despite these reviews, 
The overall success of the Madison Square Garden show enabled the group, through Mill Lampel's connections, to do a tour of CIO-affiliated unions across the country, which the group saw as a golden opportunity. For those who are less familiar, the CIO, or Congress of Industrial Organizations, was the federation of unions that permitted membership of unskilled workers, which was different from the American Federation of Labor, the parent union of only skilled tradespeople, from whom the CIO had split in 1935. It was later in the 1950s when the two unions merged to form the AFL-CIO, which is of course still in existence today. But it was the CIO unions that the Almanacs wanted access to, likely because of the sheer number of members and the possibilities for connecting with unskilled workers. Mill and Pete prepared feverishly for this tour, while the other members of the group sort of allowed themselves to be led by Pete's leadership. Pete's routine was to wake up in the morning and immediately reach for his banjo, his guitar, or his recorder. While Pete wanted to be ready musically, the group had to pay for transportation to make it across the country to all the gigs. To remedy this situation, the group went into the studio to record another two albums, one called Deep Sea Shanties and Wailing Ballads, a non-political set of songs, and Sod Buster Ballads, a bunch of traditional folk tunes with a few contributions by Woody and Lee, and the now-famous House of the Rising Sun. According to David Dunaway, the $250 fee they made from this label, General Records, went towards Lampel purchasing a 1929 Buick for the tour. Although Ronald Cohen and Dave Samuelson quote Seeger as saying it was a 1932 Buick in the liner notes from the 1996 album, Songs for Political Action. Who knows? Either way, in June 1941, when the group was getting their arrangements ready for the tour, some shocking news threw a wrench in the Almanac's gears. On June 22nd, during a jam at their apartment, a friend ran in with some headlines. Hitler had just invaded the Soviet Union. Many historians might now agree that this was inevitable, and that Stalin's deal was really just to buy the Soviet Union time in preparation for likely eventual war. But for the Almanacs, they didn't know what this meant for singing peace songs at this point. How could they continue doing this if the sole representative of communism in the world was now under attack? A day or two later, Woody finally had gotten back to New York from finishing writing songs for the Bonneville Power Administration in Oregon and set Pete and the group right on what they had to do musically now. Let's hear Pete explain this situation from his 2006 interview with Tim Robbins. So Woody comes to New York and uh, joins the Almanac City. He joined. He, uh, Hitler invaded the Soviet Union on June 22, 1941. And uh, the political situation in the world suddenly changed. Woody arrived on around the 23rd or the 24th. And I remember the very first words out of his mouth. I opened the door and said, Woody, you're here. He says, well, I guess we won't be singing any more peace songs, will we? <laughs> I says, you mean we have to support Churchill? He says, yep, Churchill's. Haven't you heard him? He says, all aid to the gallant Soviet allies. I says, is this the same Churchill who in 1920 said, strangle the Bolshevik infant in its cradle? <laughs> he says, yes, Churchill's flip-flopped. We got to flip-flops, says Woody, and he was right. The Almanacs had established a reputation as being anti-war and being critical of FDR on these grounds, which even led some fans to destroying their Almanac records once Hitler had invaded Russia. But as we hear from Pete, things were different now. As such, the decision was to focus mainly on singing Union songs during the CIO tour. 
A few weeks later, Lampel, Guthrie, Seeger, Hayes, and Hawes headed out for the Union tour. The group was to hit Chicago, Milwaukee, Denver, and many other cities in between. While they were all excited, the tour was fraught with issues from the beginning. In Philadelphia, Pete Hawes became ill and headed back to New York. Additionally, while some local unions greeted the Almanacs with open arms, others were more reserved and were less welcoming, making it difficult for the group to play for union members at all sometimes. Comments were thrown around such as, Why is a group of hillbilly singers coming in here? We have work to do. This was just the beginning of challenges the Almanacs had in getting workers interested in the style of music that they, as musicians, were using to communicate. There were some successes, however, notably in San Francisco, when the group performed their new tune, The Ballad of Harry Bridges, for the International Longshoremen and Warehouse Workers Union. To give some context for this, Harry Bridges was an Australian-born union leader who, as a rank-and-file worker and organizer, played an important role in the maritime strike of 1934 in San Francisco. Frustrated with leadership in the original International Longshoremen's Association, Bridges led his West Coast affiliates in establishing the aforementioned ILWU in 1937, which became a member of the CIO. Because he had organized with help from the Communist Party, an effort rose to deport Bridges because he was not born in the United States. So, the way the Almanacs threw support behind him in this performance was very well received by the ILWU's leadership. Let's listen to Pete talk about the Almanac's experience performing this song. We got a request to make up a ballad about Harry Bridges. It was a good, good song, and uh, a few months later, we uh, went out west, the Almanac singers. We got a second-hand car, and uh, the four of us sang for unions in Ohio and Illinois and, and Wisconsin and then in Colorado and I think even in Utah. And then we arrived, I think it was in Oakland or Berkeley, it was on the east side of the, of the bay and we were scheduled to sing at a longshoreman's meeting. And when we walked in there, uh, they were muttering, oh, we got work to do, one of these hillbilly singers here. <laughs> but uh, Harry says, uh, men, I think you'll be interested in what you hear. When we sang that song, we got an ovation. I think we sang it, had to sing it twice. <laughs> and on our way up the aisle, on our way out, they slapped Woody Guthrie on the back so hard they nearly knocked him over. He was a little guy about five foot four. <laughs> uh, that was our introduction to the West Coast. Oh, the FBI is worried. The bosses, they are scared. They can't depart six million men they know. And we're not gonna let them send Harry over the sea. We'll fight for Harry Bridges and build the CIO. They built a big bonfire by the... While San Francisco was a major highlight for the Almanacs, members continued splitting off before the tour was over. Eventually, Hayes took a bus home, citing that he was too ill to continue. Lampel met up with an old girlfriend in Los Angeles and got back separately. This left the dynamic duo of Guthrie and Seeger, 
who would make their way home via Oregon, Washington, and Montana. As the listener can probably surmise by now, Guthrie and Seeger's personalities could not have been further apart. Pete was organized, clean-cut, and very attentive to their task at hand. Woody was laid back and went with the flow, and sometimes could be ill-mannered and crass. Pete was drawn to his opposites, as he always had been. But while he admired Woody for his work and his life, given Woody's vices, Pete now had less of a need to see Woody as a role model. In the fall of 1941, when Seeger and Guthrie returned to New York, they faced the reality of not yet knowing exactly where to go with the Almanacs, politically speaking. They would need to give up peace songs and restructure the group a bit. They also faced the issue of topical songs becoming less topical. Many argue that topical songs have a shelf life, that when times change, then songs about current events become less relevant. This is true to a certain extent, although we need to appreciate how topical songs continue to have educational merit in the long term. For example, many can learn a good deal about periods of history from topical songs decades later. I'm sure many listeners have benefited from Woody Guthrie and Phil Oakes' compositions for this exact reason. But for the almanacs at this juncture, this was an issue. In addition to figuring out new music, to work on their politics some more, the group began meeting with a representative of the Communist Party who taught them more about Marx and the class basis of society. To be radical meant being accepted by the party at this time. But although Pete was very much an intellectual, he got bored of these academic conversations, which he saw as too abstract. While he appreciated the theoretical foundation one needed to think, Seeger was pragmatically oriented, and eventually would drift off from these meetings. Eventually, to make a point when having a political conversation, one of the almanacs would take out one of their instruments, and an intellectual chat would turn into a jam. But to try and get more organized, the almanacs all moved in together in a townhouse on West 10th Street in Greenwich Village. Woody took over the entire second floor, and the others bunked where they could. The house would have instruments, notation, and lyric sheets everywhere, and music would always be coming out of one room or another. Woody was writing a lot of songs, and people would come down in the morning to find him slumped over a typewriter with an empty bottle of wine next to him. Leadbelly, Earl Robinson, and others from the music business would drop by to play music, with some sessions going late into the night, with new verses being improvised on the spot to old folk tunes. On nights when the group had gigs, they would travel the proverbial subway circuit, starting at around 9 p.m., going from one gig to the other, ending at around 3 in the morning. But really, to pay the $95 a month rent, the Almanacs held rent parties on Sunday afternoons, where friends would pay a few dozen cents to hang out and listen to music. But, as time went on, the Almanacs discovered that they were not being taken seriously. Seeger had formally joined the Communist Party by this point, as it meant that you were willing to walk the walk. However, party affiliates would complain to Seeger and the Almanacs that their songs weren't radical enough. For example, Singing about Jim Crow wasn't sufficient. They had to say the explicit lyrics, Jim Crow must go, in order to satisfy the party's expectations. But on a musical front, the group wasn't having its desired success either. Bess Lomax stated that maybe they were in the wrong city. They were facing the same issue that they had on the CIO tour, where urban and immigrant audiences struggled to connect with rural folk song approaches. New Yorkers were more interested in the pop and jazz tunes of the day. Perhaps if Seeger and his companions had played saxophones, they would have gotten more traction with the New York audience. Additionally, in terms of having an authentic edge, Guthrie and Hayes were the only real working class members of the group. 
Pete's positionality did not lend to the same kind of social or political meaning the others brought, and Pete knew this. To a certain extent, this also speaks to musical performance. Woody had an ability to hold a note for a long time and bend it with his voice, and Lee had a bit of gospel embedded in his vocal inflections. This sort of thing is perhaps produced by what music one is exposed to as a child, but one's class positionality has to do with being around that kind of music and singing in the first place. Pete wasn't raised on this. Furthermore, the vocal technique that somebody like Woody Guthrie had also came out of his lived experiences. This is a key phenomenon to appreciate regarding one's social and musical subjectivity. When interviewed at the Ash Grove in 1971 in Los Angeles, Muddy Waters talked about this social and musicological phenomenon in his own case. That white kids could learn to play the guitar pretty well, but they couldn't sing the same way or get the same feel as he could, simply because they haven't had hard times. In other words, when one sings, one is reaching from a different place, and how you sound is a product of those times, memories, and experiences. We often think of the field holler or the blues as prime examples of this, but it is possible for this to be found and can come out of any folk or roots tradition anywhere. To be sure, throughout his career, Pete Seeger would acknowledge that he had a kind of imposter syndrome at his live performances, but would defend the importance of getting the music across as best he could. Thus, we can conclude that, without a doubt, the almanacs had their limitations, but they believed that the accessibility of the music had socio-political potential for fighting the capitalist system. Pete was this in-between artist and activist, straddling the line of rural and city. But despite all these elements that at face value might seem faulty, Pete and the Almanacs were folk musicians, and folk musicians they would stay. Besides the question of authenticity, though, the Almanacs faced hardships getting gigs after Pearl Harbor. Now unions and management were signing no-strike packs left and right to support industrial production for the war effort. Only a few small unions around the city wanted the Almanacs to come out and sing strike songs now. The group had moved to a new apartment on 6th Avenue, but with all their gigs drying up because no one wanted to hear union songs, they were struggling financially. Their landlord even had gone to court to try and evict them due to lack of rent payments. Gordon Friesen, an occasional member of the Almanacs, wrote the following about keeping the Almanac house going. Quote, Pete Seeger, diligent fire builder and stoker, finally had no fuel left to feed the furnace. All efforts to keep the house heated on weekdays were abandoned. Frigid temperatures took over. Windows frosted. Pipes froze. Icicles grew like stalactites in the bathroom. The only source of heat, really quite feeble, was the gas oven in the kitchen, lit and turned up full force. Those huddled around the open stove door could hear the chattering teeth of guests, fool enough to stay overnight. Woody, always ready to record in song what went on around him, wrote a blues, one verse of which went, I went into the bathroom and I pulled up the chain. Polar bears on icebergs came floating down the drain. Hey, pretty mama, I got those Arctic Circle blues. Unquote. Things eventually got so bad that the group kept their pooled resources in a box in the kitchen, where everyone was allowed a dollar a day on the honor system, which didn't always work. When Pete would encounter Lee and Woody sharing a bottle of something, he would tear into them, with Lee and Woody barely acknowledging his annoyance. On top of all this, Bess Lomax, the only one of the group with a regular 9-to-5, ended up losing her job as a secretary, and finances plummeted even further. Pete was beside himself with how things were going. But as winter passed, things seemed more promising for everyone. Toshi had resurfaced in Pete's life, 
and was now commonly frequenting the Almanac House. The group had turned its efforts to writing anti-Hitler tunes and war songs. As chance would have it, pro-war songs were becoming pop hits, and so this became the focus of the Almanac's next album titled Dear Mr. President, released in February 1942. The title track features Seeger singing the song as a talking blues, speaking from the perspective of an average person expressing their existential desires in relation to the war effort. Now I hate Hitler and I can tell you why. He's caused lots of good folks to suffer and die. He's got a way of shoving folks around. I figure it's about time we slapped him down. Give him a dose of his own medicine. Lead poison. Now, Mr. President, we haven't always agreed in the past, I know, but that ain't at all important now. What is important is what we got to do. We got to lick Mr. Hitler, and until we do, other things can wait. In other words, first we got a skunk to skin. War means overtime. The second track, Beltline Girl, features Sis Cunningham, now a regular in the almanacs, delivering an impressive vocal. The song is sung from the place of a woman whose partner has gone off to fight in the war and she has a responsibility to work in industry to support war mobilization. The order of the tracks is listed differently across different sources after this one, but most point to Round and Round Hitler's Grave as the third. An adaptation from the traditional Appalachian tune Old Joe Clark, this rendition is full of energy, as this was a popular live number for the group. Now I wished I had a bushel, wished I had a peck, wished I had old Hitler with a rope around his neck. Hey, round, round, Hitler's grave, round, round we go. The way that poor boy down won't get up no more. Mussolini won't last long, tell you the reason why. We're gonna salt his beef and hang it up to dry. Hey, round, round, get the spray, round, round we go. The way that poor boy down, he won't get us no more. Pete's banjo playing gets the basic melody here. Although we can tell he was still continuing to develop his skills, as several important melody notes are left out of the A part of the song. Following this is the song Side by Side, which features occasional almanac member Arthur Stern. Musically, this seems to be a combination of Appalachian and some Eastern European influences. The Almanac's consistent harmonic choral approach is uniquely utilized here in telling this metaphorical story about a man who wanted to kill his companions, but others rose up against him, likely analogous to the Allied powers in Europe. And in this house eight men did dwell. Hullabaloo, 
One stood up and shook his fist. Hullabaloo, ballet. Hullabaloo, ballet. I'll get stronger than the rest. Hullabaloo, ballet. He first began to cheat and steal. Hullabaloo, ballet. The next song, Deliver the Goods, speaks to the efficacy of American industrial production and engineering in being able to defeat the Nazis. It's gonna take everybody to win this war The butcher and the baker and the clerk in the store The guys who sail the ships and the guys who run the trains And the farmer raising wheat upon the Kansas plain The butcher, the baker, the tinker and the tailor We'll all work behind the soldier and the sailor We're working in the cities, we're working in the woods And we'll all work together to deliver the goods Now me and my boss, we never did agree If the thing helped him, then it didn't help me but when a burglar tries to bust into your house, you stop fighting with the landlord and throw in my... One of the most successful songs to come out of the album was the final track, Reuben James. In October 1941, before the Japanese attacked Hawaii, a German submarine had fired upon and sunk the USS Reuben James in the North Atlantic off the coast of Iceland, with 95 men dying in the attack. A previous incident had occurred in early September, when a U-boat fired upon the USS Greer, but the torpedo did not make contact. The Reuben James was sunk by the Germans and what many consider was the first act of overt aggression towards the US by Germany. Yet this did not immediately lead to a formal declaration of war on the Axis powers. The Almanacs felt as if this event needed exposure and chronicling. Woody took the melody of the famous Carter family song, Wildwood Flower, and then wrote new music for the chorus, with lyrics saying, what were their names? What were their names? Did you have a friend on the good Reuben James? Have you heard of a ship called the good Reuben James? Manned by hard-fighting men, both of honor and fame. She flew the stars and stripes of the land of the free, but tonight she's in her grave at the bottom of the sea. Tell me what were their names, tell me what were their names, did you have a friend on the good Reuben James? What were their names, tell me what were their names, did you have a friend on the good Reuben James? This is perhaps some of the almanac singing at its finest, not focused on numbers or data, but on people, the true common denominator of the whole situation. The Almanac's new songs proved fruitful and got them greater exposure. A photographer from Life magazine showed up at one of their Sunday rent parties. Additionally, Pete, Sis Cunningham, Woody, and Bess landed themselves a gig playing on the CBS radio program, We the People. Following this, the group was invited to appear on another radio program called This Is War for 30 million listeners. The Almanacs were lucky because they emerged at a time when radio was looking for cheaper performers. Hollywood had recently doubled their royalties for music published through ASCAP, or the American Society of Composers and Publishers. Radio stations went their own way by setting up BMI, or Broadcast Music Incorporated, and began looking for unsigned and unrecorded acts. The almanacs were perfect for filling this gap, or so it seemed to the industry anyway. Their radio presence led to the group being picked up by the well-known management group, the William Morris Agency. 
They were also contacted by Decca Records, who expressed interest in potential plans for a formal record contract. The Almanacs themselves now joined a union, Local 802 of the American Federation of Musicians, with their first dues paid by the agency. Now with the help of William Morris, the Almanacs got connected to one of their best-paying gigs yet, an audition performing for wealthy businessmen at what was referred to as the Rainbow Room, one of Manhattan's high-end nightclubs 65 stories up at Rockefeller Center. The agents at William Morris thought that this could lead to a 15-minute-a-day slot singing headlines on CBS radio. All this sounded glitzy, but that's all it really was. It would appear that the Almanacs were quote-unquote making it, but this couldn't have been further from their goal. Despite this conventional marker of success, the Rainbow Room did not turn out to be the audience that the Almanacs were looking for. On the day of the audition, the group took the elevator to the top and walked out into a very glamorous lounge-type room, quite unlike any space they had played before. Guthrie particularly felt out of place. They were led over to where the band set up and got started with Round and Round Hitler's Grave. The audience seemed to enjoy the group, but some were calling out that the group should wear overalls and the women should wear sunbonnets to fit the stereotypical part better. Woody was already fuming when the Almanacs overheard this audience chatter. Next, they played Lead Belly's blues tune, New York City, but in epic frustration, Woody began improvising verses on the spot to jab back at the offensive businessmen. Lyrics included, quote, At the Rainbow Room, the soup's on to boil. They're stirring the pot with standard oil. It's 60 stories high, they say, a long way back to the USA. The Rainbow Room is mighty high. You can see John D. go a-flying by. By the Rainbow Room is mighty fine. You can spit all the way to the Texas line. Unquote. The more terse Woody got with his verses, the more the audience howled with laughter. Bess Lomax later stated that Woody had never been more humiliated and never really got over the incident. Pete walked away just as infuriated, saying they'd never have been able to really sing their own songs in such a venue anyway. But the nail in the coffin for the Almanacs didn't come from their logistical issues or lack of commercial desires. No. The final straw came from none other than the FBI and the newspapers. As many of us know, the FBI's surveillance of Pete Seeger is a motif that ran throughout Seeger's and his fellow musicians' lives. But it began earlier than maybe some listeners realize. The first known investigations done by the FBI on Seeger were when he and Woody played for the Longshoremen in San Francisco in August of 1941. The FBI operative that was present there didn't enjoy the show. His report evidently stated that the audience was manipulated by the so-called communists who were leading the singing. FBI headquarters notably found a certain line from the Ballad of Harry Bridges quite distasteful and subversive, being the line, quote, The FBI is worried, the bosses they are scared, unquote. The FBI's central office sent out several notices to other offices to be on the watch for almanacs performing in their communities. Indeed, any mention of Seeger's name in the Daily Worker ended up being accounted for in an ever-growing file. Why was the FBI on the Almanac's case? Well, as author Aaron J. Leonard tells us, this was initially because of a directive Franklin Roosevelt issued to the FBI in early September 1939. Roosevelt had directed the Attorney General, the FBI, and Department of Justice to, quote, take charge of investigative work in matters relating to espionage, sabotage, and violations of neutrality regulations, unquote. 
This directive led to the Bureau's internal establishment of the so-called Custodial Detention List. This list, put together by former Library of Congress clerk J. Edgar Hoover, would become an index of individuals who were seen to be potential threats to national security. The directive suggested that anyone with alleged strong communist tendencies would be a candidate for this list and should be followed closely. Before long, Sis Cunningham, Alan Lomax, Millard Lampel, and Pete Seeger would become some of these candidates. FBI monitoring will, of course, be further discussed in many future episodes. But for those curious, in 2015, the FBI released nearly 2,000 pages of material stored in their file on Pete Seeger. Aaron Leonard explains in his footnotes that, based on his correspondence with an archivist at the National Archives from 2016, the archives still have roughly 5,000 pages of Seeger's New York FBI file. This file begins in 1946 and ends in 1986. Because the length of the file is as large as it is, it requires review, probably for redaction of agents' names at the bare minimum, and it will reportedly be many years until the entire file is released. But what were the exact actions the FBI was taking to investigate the Almanacs in 1942? Well, they were a bit behind the times, as many months passed before the FBI discovered Songs for John Doe. While the album was old hat for the Almanacs anyway, the Bureau decided that these songs were dangerous and a threat to the national war effort, and that they needed to find the perpetrators who made these songs. The challenge was that the musicians' names were not on the record, as it only bore the name The Almanac Singers. Later, in September 1942, an agent from the New Haven FBI office drove to a record-pressing company in Newark, New Jersey, to find any evidence of the records. In doing so, the agent learned that the masters belonged to a label that was no longer in business, and that any remaining John Doe records were collector's items. Keynote recordings had stopped selling the album anyway, after the group changed their tune to pro-war, then reportedly destroyed any remaining copies. Six months after this, the same agent drove to RCA headquarters looking for any information on the Almanacs. RCA stated that they'd never heard of the group. When the agent asked for a list of small record producers and labels, the RCA executives rolled their eyes at the agent's naivete, suggesting that maybe they go pick up a copy of Variety or Billboard. Now that's pretty embarrassing, isn't it? But while the FBI was on their trail, the mainstream press was getting their licks in as well. Right after the group performed on the radio show This Is War, the New York Post published an article titled, quote, Peace Choir Changes Tune, unquote. Additionally, a headline from the World Telegram popped up that read, quote, Singers on New Morale Show Also Warbled for Communists, unquote. In a sense, it is obnoxious that the press, or anyone for that matter, labeled the Almanacs this way. This happened largely because the Almanacs had a public presence. Many people changed their perspective on the war after Pearl Harbor, and as such, this wasn't necessarily unique to the Almanacs at all. But in the entertainment and artistic realm, they became discursively represented as the fall people with this whole controversy. As Gordon Friesen and Sis Cunningham later stated, the Almanacs were originally blacklisted in 1942, long before there was any McCarthy blacklist. Because of this media coverage, hardly any venue would have the Almanacs perform now. DECA dropped its interest in a record deal, and the William Morris Agency effectively let the group go. Along with the dissolution of these outlets for their music, only Seeger and Guthrie held on to any solo bookings. 
Other now regular members of the Almanacs, Arthur Stern, Pete Hawes' brother Butch Hawes, and Bess Lomax, ended up moving to Detroit and taking factory jobs there. They would perform as a satellite Almanac singers in the Midwest, but the original group membership had fractured. Woody was joining the Merchant Marines with his musician friend Cisco Houston and their other pal Jim Longy. It appeared as if any consistent incarnation of the Almanac singers had seemingly ceased to exist. In any event, because of all this mess, Pete was happy to get out of the Almanacs when he did. A year later in his diary, he wrote that the main reason he so willingly joined the Army was because he felt like a failure musically. Seeger received his draft notice in June 1942, and later that summer he found himself in uniform in Biloxi, Mississippi, awaiting the possibility of being shipped overseas. He wanted to keep talking Union, but the future was uncertain. In his words, he had no idea if he would come back from the war, quote, wounded, crippled, or blind, unquote. Then a whine and a rock and a great explosion roared. They laid the Reuben James on that cold ocean floor. Tell me what again thank you so much everyone for listening to this episode uh i know it was a long one when i originally planned it um i thought i could fit world war ii in with this one but when it comes to the analysis of the uh, almanac's albums and then when it came to thinking about discussion of public response and everything i discovered that you know world war ii is really a separate chapter anyway and um needed to separate those um let me just say, I think it's necessary to do some album analysis of Seeger and his fellow artist musicianship. I really enjoyed getting into it this time, and this is something that is very rarely discussed or examined at all. Um, sort of a lyrical and poetic and musical analysis of Seeger's albums, and um, you know, I think all the musical contributions and impact of the Almanacs are underappreciated if we don't do all of this. You can hear a lot of their influence, of course, I believe, in the 60s revival period and 
today, certainly in terms of using the one, four, and five co chords in, in an accessible manner. Uh, but I think a lot of their choral and harmonic vocals are very unique to them. And it's questionable whether there has been a group that's matched the almanacs in the same way, musically speaking. Have they really been challenged? Um, for those listeners that are new to Pete Seeger or new to folk and roots music, and even for more experienced people, uh, please remember that you don't always have to agree, nor do you always have to make a decision about whether you disagree with the politics of the songs. I think that from today's standards, the isolationist standpoint of the 1930s is well understood, even if people now in retrospect believe it was the wrong policy to ignore Roosevelt's desires to enter the war earlier. But whether or not we agree or disagree with that is perhaps even beside the point here. What I hope to draw attention to is the technicalities and imperatives for how music and politics are grafted together through this lens and what the influences were and how possible it is for anyone to come to write a political song. And we definitely have several political folk musicians and roots musicians today in the 21st century that have adopted these techniques and desires. Although I would suggest that the American political folk music scene now is somewhat lacking. I mean, are, are we really fruitfully doing the things that the Almanac showed us and using all those methods? Are we actually applying them? The jury's out for me on uh, whether we're, we're really doing that and getting to the core. Uh, with the presence of technology and images and AI and all the rest of it now, the trend has become for people to prefer image and imagination purely over reality. And I would argue that this is not necessarily a good value and it can be quite damaging for our society at a global scale. And music has a role to play in fighting all of this unreality. <laughs> to, to borrow a, a word from one of John Hartford's songs. And I hope folk and roots music can forget about, you know, the trivialities of how people look when they're performing or the performativity of what you're wearing or playing behind some stereotypical backdrop or setting and focus more on the message of the music and the material changes it's supposed to bring about. And I'm not saying that music and songs shouldn't transform and develop. Uh, we can anticipate that this happens in many ways and musical change, of course, happens and should happen. But I think the bigger picture is um, if we give in to the consumerist unreality of contemporary technology in terms of how it conditions uh, us to experience and think about music, then we're not really listening to the Almanac singers at all, are we? Um, we're not really paying attention fully to what they have to say. It's just something I think we need to check ourselves on from time to time. I did want to make a further note about the FBI and their presence investigating the Almanacs in the early 40s. They weren't exactly, of course, stopping the Almanacs in the moment. And naturally, the Almanacs weren't aware this surveillance was really going on. But I think it's important to later acknowledge that what begins even now in the early 40s has this impact in just a few very short years of making these peace records. In conclusion, uh, please consider joining the Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash Podcast. It would be lovely to develop a community of interested people who see the same things going on with music and want to connect with other seeker-minded folks. So please consider checking it out if you'd like to communicate further with me or with others. 
Uh, for those interested, our next episode will discuss Pete's musical pursuits and his musical role in the military in World War II and later on the founding of the People's Songs organization in the late 40s. There is a Season is produced, written, and recorded by Adam C. Morse. Musical selections for this episode that were not directly discussed include two additional versions of Woody Guthrie's song, Reuben James, Pete Seeger's version, and the version by the Kingston Trio, with their own lovely political verse at the end. See you all next time. <laughs>